Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Historical Hysteria. My name is Nicholas Ward and this week we are talking about the nuclear apocalypse that never was. Imagine you were alive in the 1960s and one day your worst nightmare became real. Nuclear bombs started hitting cities. You and your family just made it to a fallout shelter. You're there for days, weeks, months, nothing. Finally, through your shortwave radio, you hear that radiation has receded enough and that there are government safe zones nearby. You journey out into the world, now forever destroyed by man's hubris. Battling through hordes of refugees and corpses, the ruins of everything you have ever known, you arrive beaten and bloody at a refugee camp. You're given a blanket and some soup. There's some semblance of order. You breathe your first sigh of relief, and then you get a tap on the shoulder. A postman is standing behind you. He hands you a form, Form 801, and next to him is a man in a suit. Mr. Smith, I'm from the IRS, and I'm afraid you are being audited. Now, starting in the 1950s, countries all around the world began asking the question, what happens in a nuclear war? By the 1960s, this question had gone from idle curiosity to existential panic, as enough nuclear weapons were being produced to wipe out every other major city in the world. Countries in East and West began drawing up complex nuclear plans for first and second strikes, and military budgets ballooned into a never-ending arms race. Side note, my favourite nuclear plan of all time is that of the UK, because starting in the 1960s, the British realised that they couldn't maintain ground-based nuclear weapons because there was too much danger of them being wiped out in a first strike. So instead, they constructed a nuclear submarine fleet who, even if Britain were destroyed, could retaliate. But before telecommunications... How does a submarine figure out if the UK has been destroyed? By listening to the BBC World Service, of course. <laughs> Until the 1980s, the UK's plan for nuclear war was genuinely that nuclear submarines would occasionally surface, turn on their radios, listen for the BBC, and if it wasn't on, doomsday. Let's, let's get going with doomsday. That was the plan. That was genuinely their plan. While the British had a pretty fatalistic attitude towards nuclear war, right from the start the Americans were the complete opposite. Now representations of nuclear war often end with nuclear Armageddon, and the assumption that the living will envy the dead. However, in the 1950s and 60s, militaries and governments on either side of the Iron Curtain weren't, weren't so sure, and established extensive plans on how to win the subsequent war and how to nuclear-proof their cities, establishing contingency plans for everything, from how to evacuate the government to which museum pieces to prioritise. The American government was especially enthusiastic about Armageddon, introducing the Single Integrated Operated Plan in 1961. It would remain in place till 2003. Prior to 1961, nuclear bombs needed to be delivered by plane or artillery, which had given the Americans a strong strategic advantage, being separated from Europe and Asia by thousands of kilometres of water. However, with the creation of the first ICBMs and submarine-launched nuclear missiles in 1959, everything had changed. 
War was no longer winnable without massive casualties. Did this slow down the Americans? Not a chance. Despite the constant repetition today about how unwinnable a nuclear war was, in the 1960s, generals were champing at the bit to turn the USSR and China into glass. During the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, all but one of President Kennedy's military advisors advocated for immediate first strikes and all believed America could easily win a nuclear engagement with the USSR with minimal casualties. That was about 18,000 soldiers for the invasion of Cuba and a paltry few million American citizens. You know, no, no big deal. Unknown to Kennedy's generals, JFK recorded all conversations in the White House. Listening to the audio tapes of these generals during the crisis is both fascinating and terrifying. The calmness and frankness with which they talk about a nuclear war still sends shivers down my spine. Interestingly, no one in America, including JFK, knew just how close the world came to nuclear war. With the Cuban Missile Crisis raging, four Soviet subs entered the Caribbean, and for 40 years, the story went, the US Navy detected the subs, used depth charges to scare them away from Cuba. What was kept secret by the Soviets was that the submarines had been given permission to use their nuclear weapons, on the condition of a unanimous vote between the three most senior staff. As the crisis continued, and with no way for Moscow to communicate to the submarines, the captain of one submarine, trapped in the Gulf of Mexico, became convinced that the depth charges meant that World War III had begun. The political officer on board and the captain concurred. Nuclear strikes were now required. Only one officer refused. Second captain and submarine commodore Vasily Akhipov. Akhipov refused to allow World War III to start on his watch and after four days the sub surfaced and was escorted away from Cuba. But back to the apocalypse. By 1961, nuclear war now meant inevitable widespread nuclear destruction. Plans were drawn up extensively for and in response to the possibility of first strikes. But there was still the question, what about the war after the first nuclear strikes? This wasn't as stupid a question as we might think today, because at the time, though there were tens of thousands of nuclear warheads ready for deployment, both the USSR and the USA only had a small handful of ICBMs and submarine-launched payloads. Most warheads were tactical nuclear weapons designed to be used for battles rather than mass genocide. Now, what all this meant was that despite what pop culture says today, the generals and civilian planners of the time did not think that nuclear war meant inevitable complete destruction. Certainly, a few cities might have to be sacrificed, but what's the big deal there? The first stage of America's nuclear plan was to protect as much of the population as possible. Fallout bunkers were constructed and encouraged around the country and massive programs to cheaply stock these with supplies of water and food were undertaken. There is a common myth around the concept of duck and cover that it was a joke made up to comfort people who would certainly die. This 
actually isn't true, provided you aren't in the blast zone of a nuclear bomb, finding even basic shelter massively increases survivability from nuclear fallout, and at the time even the largest nuclear blasts would not have wiped out most cities, just, you know, most of one. Much of this preparation was focused around the military, obviously, how they would deploy and resist the upcoming war. However, it was not just the departments of defense that were involved in nuclear planning. In America, virtually every government department was part of an overarching plan to re-establish normal life as quickly as possible following a nuclear strike. The Federal Reserve buried bunkers full of cash, about $2 billion worth, as well as banking equipment to pay wages and maintain a banking system for up to 18 months. The National Park Service was in charge of running and establishing refugee camps, and even had a special unit dedicated to rescuing the Liberty Bell from Philadelphia. The Department of Agriculture researched long-term food solutions and produced survival rations for bunkers, which are still edible today. Even the National Archives and the Library of Congress were involved and had to choose a handful of museum pieces to evacuate to government bunkers in the event of Armageddon. But the two most vital departments for post-nuclear survival were the IRS and the Post Office. See, the Post Office were in charge of doing a quick post-nuclear war census to count the dead, and had bunkers filled with millions of pre-printed 801 forms to hand out to any shell-shocked survivors. And while this should come as no surprise, the centerpiece of the US Civilian Recovery Plan was the IRS. Even while parks were preparing for millions of refugees and agriculture was thinking about how we keep people alive in bunkers for months to years, people were still bravely asking but what about my money? The IRS drew up vitally important plans on how to assess and tax nuclear damaged property. I think whoever was running the IRS took the Ben Franklin quote, the only thing guaranteed in life is death and taxes, a little too literally, if I'm being honest. But if you think the weirdness of a post-nuclear war stops there, there's also the line of secession. Now, I would say most people know there is a succession plan for the president and most world leaders. First, in America, it goes the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, etc., all the way down to a designated survivor. But to make sure the government could run in any state, every member of cabinet had their own succession list, often with their own designated survivors. These lists were often 20 people long. There is an alternate history of the 1960s where a nuclear war happens and the Secretary of Education's 20th choice gets made president. Although weirdly, the Secretary of Education is not at the bottom of the secession list. The Secretary of Homeland Security has the honour at 17th in line, which I've always found is odd. So, in the 1960s, there was some lowly public servant who probably unknowingly was only the untimely death of 255 to 360 people away from becoming president. The American military and government was absolutely petrified of a power vacuum during a nuclear war, so the solution was to have a clear 
line of succession for every vital person for the running of the government. Through all of this, no one really thought that society would be reduced to living in bunkers. Rather, it was thought that society would just go back to normal. Then they would get the real war underway. Just in case you thought the plans for war were any less strange, thanks to freedom of information, today we know that America and NATO plan was insane. The American plan during the 1960s was as simple as it was horrific. It was to turn the Eastern Front into glass with small pieces of tactical nuclear artillery to give NATO a chance to mobilise. The M29 Davy Crockett was a short-range piece of nuclear artillery. How short? So short, the operators were in the blast zone. Why? Because NATO was sure the Soviets would immediately overwhelm their defences with their vast fleets of tanks, so tactical nukes levelled the playing field. Meanwhile, the Soviet plan was mostly to lure NATO into the Caucasus, then turn Armenia into glass. Either way, the plan was genocide one, humanity zero. The funny thing is that both the USSR and the USA were absolutely convinced the other was going to invade, and they needed to counter that. While both would come up with first strike contingencies, the logic for both sides was, well, if they're just about to attack, I need this. But America wasn't the only country with elaborate post-nuclear plans. In Beijing, the CCP built an entire underground city with 90 entrances that was supposed to house the entire population of 6 million people in response to Soviet nuclear pressure on them. And on the Soviet front, the USSR had quite remarkable preparedness for nuclear war. Along with numerous public and secret nuclear bunkers, the subway systems all across the USSR were designed as the first major line of defence for civilians, built with reinforced structures and blast doors. The USSR's subway system is absolutely incredible. The stations are so deep underground, it often takes more time to simply get to a platform than it does to walk between two adjacent stations. These elaborate post-doomsday plans would remain more or less unchanged until the early 2000s, but they were at their height during the 1960s. It is, it is especially incredible, considering how nearly bankrupt the Soviet Union was, how much money they put into nuclear-proofing their subway system. A shift in nuclear preparedness started to emerge in the 70s and 80s, as long-range nuclear weapons became more common and powerful. And as nuclear arsenals went from dozens of ICBMs to thousands, the idea that any urban centre would be salvageable became less and less likely, and plans started to become less how to get back on our feet and more how to get me into my bunker. A significant part of this is that ICBMs are still virtually unintersceptable. While the US and Israel today have forms of missile shields, their reliability for ICBMs is low. It is truly weird to think how convinced people were in the 60s that a nuclear war was so eminently winnable. Following the Cuban Missile Crisis, the USSR and USA both quietly began dismantling and removing their tactical nuclear weapons. Tactical nuclear weapons are not often talked about in pop culture, 
but in, in short, a tactical nuclear weapon was seen as too usable to be safely left in place, as all it would take was one jumpy commander and you had a nuclear war. I should clarify, a tactical nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon that is small enough to be used on a battlefield or in a small-scale tactical situation. Uh, they're generally under the command of individual generals or commanders to use in the event of attack. Between the 70s and 80s, everyone agreed on this. If you were going to have nukes, they had to be last strike weapons. And so we got rid of almost all tactical nuclear weapons around the world. At least everyone used to agree. Because in 2019, Donald Trump withdrew America from a nuclear pact, triggering a massive upgrading of Russia's tactical nuclear arsenals, which has resulted in a counter-upgrading of NATO's tactical nuclear arsenals, which has triggered a... Yeah, you get the point, don't you? Yay. Nuclear apocalypse. Ah, oh, fuck's sake. Anyway, this is a history podcast, so back to nuclear war. Obvious consequence of nuclear war today, we all know, is nuclear winter. None of us will survive, we will all be decimated, and the world will be forever destroyed. All civilization gone, and only the smallest of remnants, only the worst of the worst and the luckiest of the lucky will survive, and the rest of us will be... glass. But where does the concept of nuclear winter come from? It's always one of those things that we're taught, and yet... Why? Why would nuclear winter happen? Well, if you would like to find out about the credibility of nuclear winter, join me next week when that will be our entire topic in part two on nuclear war. But that is all we have time for today. Before I go, let me leave you with this. But before I go, let me leave you with this. Did you know, in 1983, a man by the name of Stanislav Yevgrafovich Petrov, and I'm really sorry for that pronunciation, was an officer at a command center for a nuclear early warning system in Russia. He received an alarm saying that the USA had initiated a first nuclear strike against Russia with dozens of nuclear missiles heading straight towards them. Stanislav was in charge of issuing the warning that would have resulted in a Soviet counter-strike on the US beginning nuclear war. The alarm was a false warning. Stanislav refused to fire. And yet again, a single person was all that stood between the world and complete oblivion. Yay, nuclear apocalypse. Thank you for joining me this week. I hope you will join me again next week. And wherever you are, I hope you are having a fantastic day. Goodbye.